We're in the middle of upward basketball. We've played six of eight games. We have two more games. Upward basketball is a really cool ministry to be a part of. I've had some incredible conversations this year with people who are hurting. We have a mom who's a single mom. She was in a bad marriage, and she basically ran away to hide in Alabama. Somebody told her about our league, and she showed up, and we sat down and chatted, and she cried because she wasn't where anybody really loved her. And it's so awesome to be able to give to those people. We are going to have our awards celebration in here on February the 3rd. It's Super Bowl Sunday. We start at 3. We ask all of our upward families to come, all of our players to come. We introduce them all. But we would also like for you to come just to see these people that God has brought to us and to give you a chance afterwards to love on them and to make them feel welcome. So you're getting a personal invitation to come and join us on that day. Like some of you perhaps, as a child, I was fascinated with space travel. So a little boy in Jacksonville, Florida, I remember searching the sky on the day of a rocket launch. I pointed at several things that I thought was a rocket. I'm not sure any of them really was. Several years ago, I had the opportunity here to build a vacation Bible school set that featured a rocket. On the last day, we had lights and smoke. I stood at the base of it and shook it real hard and little eyes looked up, hoping to see the big rocket punch to the ceiling. It was glorious. It didn't go anywhere, but it was cool to look at. It had several things that needed to be a rocket. It had a nose cone, it had a bullet shape, it had fins, but it didn't have any power. It takes a lot of power to launch a rocket. And a space shuttle is even heavier. On Tuesday, July 1st, 1997, I was in Orlando as a part of a student mission trip. We had finished the day, we'd had lunch, we were cleaning up when one of our students said, hey, look at that. It was a space shuttle. It was the space shuttle Columbia that in just four short years, we would all watch it explode. one of NASA's worst disasters ever. I've never gotten to see a space shuttle launch live, but I've got to see it on TV. They begin with the countdown. The countdown hits zero. Smoke drifts from the pad as the main engines, and then the solid rockets lift the shuttle into the sky. It's a sight to see, even if you're just watching it on TV. You can tell there's tremendous power to lift the rocket, the shuttle, into space. Lest you start to believe I'm talking about rockets today, let me quickly say the power the amount of energy required to lift that shuttle, breaking the chains of gravity, is immense. This image serves as a picture of the power of God that God used to break the chains of complacency that had captured the nation of Israel in bondage. They were self-imposed chains. While they didn't ask for them, they just kind of sat there while Satan bound them up. Today we look at 1 Kings chapter 18. We find, I suspect, a very familiar story to you. Um, it's the story of Elijah's bold stand against the 450 evil prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. It took place at Mount Carmel, and it was a challenge, their faith in the one true God. It's a story that has captured my attention since I was a child. At the end of the last service, people came up and said, I've always loved that story. I would have loved to have been there. It'd be awesome. It'd be awesome if I could watch it on Hulu or Netflix. 
It's a story we can all find intriguing. Maybe like me, you like to pull for the underdog and you see Elijah as the underdog, one against 450. Maybe you see it as just the awesome display of God's powers. He rains down fire from heaven. Maybe it's the crowd remembering, turning, worshiping God that grabs your attention. So stay with me as we look into God's word. We're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 18, looking at verses 16 through 21. Would you stand with me for the public reading of God's holy word? Verse 16, chapter 18, 1 Kings. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. In that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered, not a word. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray today that as we look to this passage, that we will be moved. We thank you that you loved us enough to send power to the people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at chapter 18 to do some context work, we need to look back to chapter 16, verse 29, where it tells us that Ahab became the king of Israel. It also tells us that he reigned for 22 years. Verse 30 tells us he did more evil in God's eyes than any king before him, and we could add any king after him. It's not exactly the legacy you want to leave. Not only was he a bad king, he was a bad king who married badly. The king of Sidon had a daughter. Her name was Jezebel. She married Ahab and brought with her the worship of Baal and Asherah. It wasn't long before Ahab began joining her in worship. It wasn't long after that he began to build temples and altars and he raised Asherah poles. Because of Ahab's blatant lifestyle, God had Elijah tell him that the rain was going to stop for a while. Not just a lack of rain, but no rain and no dew until God decided it would rain again. Elijah said, I'll just let you know. Elijah left and was sustained by birds who brought him food every day. He was able to drink from a brook. The next verse tells us that the brook dried up and that he went to Zarephath. In Zarephath, there was a widow and her son. She only had enough flour and enough oil to make one last little cake of bread. She planned to eat it and die. Pastor Davin has a wonderful sermon entitled, Have You Been to Zarephath? Elijah tells her, As long as she feeds him, her supply of oil and flour will not run out until it rains. Then, later, her son got sick, her son died, and God used Elijah to bring her son back to life. In verse 24 of chapter 17, it closes with these words. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. In the passage that we read, God tells Elijah to go and tell King Ahab 
It's going to rain. It's been over three years. It had been a terrible drought. You can imagine what it would be like to have no rain for over three years. No rain, no dew. Everything was dry. Everything was brittle. So Elijah is on his way to talk to King Ahab. Verse 2 tells us the famine was severe. Things were so bad that Ahab summoned Obadiah and said, we need to go on a recon trip. We need to go and see if there's any grass left or any water left that we can give to the livestock so that our livestock won't perish. He went one way, Obadiah went the other way. Obadiah was a good man serving a bad king. Jezebel began killing the prophets, probably for saying things she didn't like. Things like, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. So she started killing them. Obadiah found 100 prophets, hid 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave, left them with some water, left them with some food. So Ahab goes one direction, Obadiah goes in the other direction. Obadiah runs into Elijah. If you think this is a coincidence, we should talk after the service. Once Obadiah realizes it's Elijah, Elijah tells Obadiah, hey, go tell Ahab that I'm back. Obadiah responds with, are you trying to kill me? Are you trying to get me killed? Ahab has searched high and low for you. Every time somebody had a sighting of you, they would go to find you and you would not be there. So if I show up and tell him he's back, he'll come and look for you. And if God sends you somewhere else and he can't find you where I told him that you were, I'm a dead man. Obadiah goes on to tell him, you may not realize this, but, but I'm with you. I've worshipped the Lord since I was a boy. While you were away, Jezebel started killing the prophets. So I divided the prophets into two groups and I hid them in caves and gave them food and gave them water. I've been faithful. I deserve to live. So realize if you tell me to go to Ahab and said, Elijah is here and you're not here, he's going to kill me. Elijah tells him, Go find Ahab and tell him I'm back and I will be here. The next verse pictures Ahab walking up to Elijah and starting with a nice little jab. What's up, troublemaker? It's really funny because Ahab is blaming Elijah for the drought. It really was his fault. He chose to worship the God who supposedly controlled the rain. Elijah gives him that, are you the pot or the kettle look and says to Ahab, it's not me. It's you and your daddy and your dad's family that have caused the trouble. It's you who have abandoned the Lord and his commandments. It's you who have followed after Baal. Elijah says, hey, let's do this. You call all the people who are from Israel. Meet me at Mount Carmel. Bring with you 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. They should be easy to find. Your wife feeds them. Verse 20 tells us Ahab did his part. Everybody gathered at Mount Carmel you got to believe that word got out about Elijah in the drought. After somewhere probably after 60 days or the first year or the second year, people were looking for somebody to blame because Baal controlled the weather. And it probably got turned to it's Elijah's fault. So when he showed up that day, I don't think he was the life of the party. Mount Carmel is described in Scripture as a symbol of beauty and fertility. The prophet Isaiah and King Solomon used Mount Carmel as an expression of God's divine blessing. The Hebrew word karem el means God's vineyard or the fruit of God. It was a beautiful place. The mountain is really a 13-mile ridge along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The highest point is only about 1,740 feet. We live in Alabama. In Alabama, we have Chihaw. 
It's a little over 2,000 feet. It's the highest point in our state. Chihaw has a small lake that would not compare to the Mediterranean. But we have a mountain with water, so there's your visual comparison. I think the fact that it's located by the sea, not necessarily the height of the mountain, is what is of major significance for the battle with the prophets of Baal because being near the sea, the effects of the drought would be least apparent. If there's water and a big body of water, it's going to be the last to be affected. So if you are a believer in the power of Baal, his claim is being the master of nature, here it would seem to be at its strongest. So you might say that Mount Carmel gives Baal a home-field advantage. But unless you start thinking this challenge is some kind of precursor, Super Bowl-like contest between Baal and the prophets of Asherah and Satan versus God himself, it was never a contest. They had as much chance of winning as the Washington generals have against the Harlem Globetrotters. It might have been a good show, but it wasn't a good matchup because God has no equal. Any battle that would feature Satan and God is always in God's favor. The best that Satan can hope for is trading a bruised heel for a crushed head. I think this was more of an exhibition matchup for the Israelites to remember who they were, who they worshipped, and why. It's a challenge for God's people to move off the fence of complacency. Elijah is not fighting the prophets of Baal. He's fighting the lack of conviction from God's people. Baal was the agricultural God. Remember in the context of the story, it says that the word of God came to Elijah saying, it will not rain, no rain and no dew. Through the lack of rain, God had already shown that Baal was defeated. Baal should have controlled the rain and God kept it from raining. God had proven that Baal was powerless. The challenge on the mountain is a, a, an illustration of a powerful message preached by Elijah. The Israelites had become fence straddlers. They tried to live in two worlds. If you straddle a fence, all you get is, well, it could hurt. God wants you to be firmly planted on his side. God is all or nothing. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other. Or you would be devoted to one and despise the other. Choose this day who you will serve. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Almighty God is holy. God demands complete allegiance. Back to Mount Carmel, Elijah's opening line didn't make any friends. His message is this. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Bel is God, follow him. This is where it would have been awesome for the people to immediately fall before God, turn their backs on everything, and follow God. But that's not what happened. The last verse we read said, but the people said nothing. They were so deeply chained to complacency, they were unmoved. Elijah was alone. There were those hundred prophets hiding in a cave, but apparently they didn't make the trip because Elijah declares, I'm the only prophet of the Lord left. Just a short, short distraction. If you ever feel like you're the only one left, you're probably not. Elijah declares, I'm the only prophet of the Lord left, but Baal has 450 prophets. And if Ahab did what he was supposed to do, there were 400 prophets of Asherah there. Elijah issues the challenge. Someone go get two bulls for us. I remind you, we're on the mountain, 1,740 feet high. And Elijah says, 
hey, could somebody go get two bulls? Anybody ever seen a bull? Anybody ever had to go get a bull? (laughs) Not an easy task. From somewhere, they found two bulls and they brought them. And Elijah says, you can have the bull first. Not even a coin toss. He told the prophets of Baal, after you shoot the bull or whatever you do to a bull, take your bull and cut it up into pieces as a sacrifice. Then, Put it on the stacked wood, but do not light the fire to consume it, and I will do the same thing. Then you call out to your God, and I will call out to my God, and whichever God answers with fire, they win. They're God. The people cried out, let her rip, tater chip, or whatever you say to start a whose God is real challenge. And verse 25 tells us, Bell took the bull by the horns or something similar, and he prepared it. Prophets of Bell made the sacrifice ready. And then from morning to noon, they cried out. They begged Baal to do something. They shouted to get his attention. But there was no response because Baal is not real. Baal was not worthy of worship. Baal is not capable of answering or saving. And Baal is not worth following. At noon, Elijah begins to trash talk. My favorite parts of the story. He says things like, hey, maybe he's hard of hearing. You should shout louder. Are you sure he's a God? Maybe he's meditating. Perhaps he's in the bathroom. Look at the Living Bible paraphrase version. It's in there. Maybe he's on a trip. He could be asleep. I've been known to trash talk. I usually trash talk if I'm behind. I think I can get into somebody's head or I feel like there's absolutely no way I can lose. Usually after trash talk, one or two things happen. The person tries harder or the person gives up. The prophets of Baal tried harder. They shouted even louder and they began to cut themselves. They took swords and spears and cut themselves until blood flowed. Lunchtime came, they continued the shouting, the begging, the bloodletting, and yet nothing happened. They were there for a show. I said that no one noticed the time, but Elijah did. He realized a few hours later that it was time for the evening sacrifice. So he began to repair the altar of God, which had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each tribe, the sons of Jacob, and he built an altar. Then he dug a trench, a fairly deep trench around the altar. He put the wood on the altar. He put the cut up bulb on the wood and he asked for some lighter fluid. He really didn't. Most of you know I do a fair amount of hiking. I like being out. I like a nice fire at night. Fires need three things, flame, fuel, and oxygen. Sometimes when I hike after rain, it's hard to build a fire because it's hard to build a fire with wet wood. Elijah was familiar with this principle. Now remember, we're in a three-year drought. The wood is going to be very dry. No dew, no rain. So it would have been very easy for Baal to send just a spark. But Baal had no power. So he instructed them, hey, grab those four large jars and fill them with water. And then he poured them over the wood and the sacrifice. He said, I tell you what, let's do that again. Now let's do it a third time. Twelve jars of water on the wood, on the sacrifice, and it began to fill up the trench. Twelve vessels of water, one for each stone, one for each tribe. 
enough to fill the trench with water. It would have been a really cool trick if Elijah had taken a torch and was able to light the fires. But Elijah didn't ask for a torch. He asked God to remind his people that he was still God and that Elijah was his servant. He didn't ask God to send a fire so he could embarrass Ahab or the bleeding prophets who should have gone down the mountain for bandages. He asked so the heart of the people would repent and be restored to their relationship with God. Verse 38 says this, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. Message for today's sermon is power to the people. I need to clarify here that I'm not talking about God sending fire to burn a sacrifice and lick up the water in the trench. God is creator. He spoke the world into existence. For him to send fire is really not that powerful a feat. Even if you soak the wood 12 times and fill the trench. You see, wood and water and sacrifice don't have the option of deciding whether or not they'll listen to God. They don't have the ability to choose. But we do. The power to the people is found in the following verses. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The power of God is the ability to transform lives. God's gift of the power to the people is what sets us apart from every false religion. The false religions are designed to steal you from God's desire, a personal relationship with him. In verse 40, then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. I know for some of you this seems a mite overboard. We're quick to judge. And yet on today, Sanctity of Life Sunday, I need to remind us that since 1973, over 5 million babies lost their life through abortion. These babies had done nothing wrong. These prophets were involved in the corruption of God's people, in the killing of God's prophet. They had made not only the choice to worship a false god, but to take as many with them as they could. God, who is the only true judge, gave a sentence to the entire group when he said to his people, you must rid all of this from your lives. There had been a drought. Elijah, speaking for God, told Ahab there would be no rain or dew for several years. Several years have passed. This chapter ends with Elijah telling Ahab, rain is coming. And it did. You should read that chapter to the end. It's pretty exciting. But right now I want to recap the mountain challenge and why it needed to be issued in the first place. It's because of this. Israel had become chained to complacency. The first link in this chain of complacency is that they were intimidated. It started when they were intimidated by Jezebel. First Kings 18, 4 says, while Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, it became unpopular to worship God alone. If Jezebel would kill the prophets, what would stop her from killing them? Under Ahab and Jezebel's leadership, the people were afraid for their lives. They were concerned about being accepted by the local culture. They wanted to be a part of the cool crowd. Sometimes we become complacent for the same reason. Many of you may be afraid that if you share Christ or take a stand for Christ, you'll lose your job. Or maybe you won't get invited to hang out with the cool crowd. Maybe you'll get stuck with the less popular people. 
The second link in this chain of complacency was inconvenience. Ahab and Jezebel were two of the most wicked leaders described in Scripture. Under their leadership, Israel had embraced Baal worship and embraced the false god Asherah. Both religions encouraged immorality, but Asherah worship included the horrible practice of child sacrifices. It's difficult to imagine how Israel could have adopted this culture, how they could have allowed this culture, this religion into their culture. When the new temple to Baal and the Asherah poles were constructed, it was now easier to worship in them. Less travel, new buildings, everybody who's anybody is there. It didn't take long before compromise led to corruption and corruption led to complacency. We see this happen in our churches. Why get up and come to Sunday school? It's cold today. Why come to church on Sunday and then back to a D group and the gathering through the week? It's much easier to stay home and turn on the TV than to attend every week. Do we really need to give financially or serve the church every week? Work schedule, ball games, school activities, weekends at the lake, they all take up our time. God has never called for half-hearted commitment. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He did not say, follow me when it's convenient or when you feel like it. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The people of Israel had two options. The people of First Baptist Pelham have two options. Strive to meet God's standard or compromise God's command to fit your own desires. Ease and comfort rarely lead to fulfillment. The next link in the chain of complacency was immorality. Baal was an agricultural god. By engaging in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes, Baal worshipers believed they could convince Baal, convince Baal to make their crops grow. You can almost hear that guy. Honey, I didn't want to do it. It's for the crops. When Israel considered serving God with holiness and purity or engaging in immorality, they chose to feed their lust with immorality. The next chain in the link of the next link in the chain of complacency was simply being indifferent. This may have been the strongest link of all because it led to the fence straddling problem, the reluctance to make a decision. First Kings eighteen twenty one, Elijah says, How long will you waver between two opinions? And the people said nothing. It was difficult to emphasize the significance of their response. They simply didn't care. I'm convinced the greatest chain that binds us to the launch pad of life is indifference. We say we care, but not enough to change. We say we'll change, but not willing to totally commit. We're interested as long as we can set the price. There is a price. We can't afford it. We had a debt to pay. There was another battle on a mount story I'd like to mention. Not Mount Carmel, but Mount Calvary. It was here ultimately that God would give power to the people. Jesus had said this, It's good that I'm going away. If I go away, I'll send an advocate, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. Jesus died on that mountain and was buried. On Sunday, the stone was rolled away and Jesus was alive. It says the stone was rolled away. It wasn't in pieces, exploded by a display of raw power. It says his grave clothes were there, not wrapped around him like Lazarus, but left there. 
like there used to be a body in them. Not tossed on the ground like you would expect if somebody woke up and found themselves in a tomb wrapped in burial cloths just there. Jesus slipped right through them. No one else has ever done that. Not Baal or Asherah or Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius or Joseph Smith. Just Jesus, Son of God, the perfect sacrifice. Dead on Friday, alive on Sunday. Jesus went home and the Holy Spirit was coming. It was on another mountain that Jesus made this promise. It was on the Mount of Olives when he said, you will receive power. Power to the people in the form of the Holy Spirit. This power was to break our chains of complacency. It's the power that enables us to break free. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power. The precious blood of the Lamb. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to build a VBS set that featured a rocket. On the last day, we had lights, smoke. I stood at the bottom and shook it. Little eyes looked up, hoping to see the big rocket punch to the ceiling. It was glorious. It didn't go anywhere, but it was cool to look at. It had several things that needed to be a rocket, a nose cone, a bullet shape, fins that didn't have power. When Ahab brought the prophets and the people to Mount Carmel, the priests for Baal and Asherah looked like priests. They acted like priests, but they had no power. They had no power because their God wasn't real. Their God could not send fire. Their God could not accept the sacrifice. You got to do more than just look the part. Lights, smoke, shaking is not power. You don't go anywhere. No matter how many people look up hoping to see something. Dancing, shouting, cutting may have made some think the priests were up to something big until they remembered what a living, loving God can do. When you remember, you repent. And when you repent, you're ready to be real. At that point, you're willing to get rid of everything that stands between you and God because you've experienced the power, because God brought power to the people. What about you? Are you watching the show hoping something big will happen? Are you complacent like the Jews? Have you sold out? Are you straddling the fence? It doesn't happen all at once. Maybe you've been intimidated or are scared of living out your faith. Maybe you got tired of being inconvenient, so you just started taking shortcuts. Maybe if you're honest, you're living in a moral lifestyle and you're not even sure how you got there. God still offers power to the people. Ask Him today to call down fire, to burn off all the aspects of your complacency. When that happens, be willing to get rid of anything that's keeping you from holding back. Today can be your day of salvation. Today can be your day of repentance and restarting. Today you're welcome to come and join us as a member of First Baptist if God is calling you to do so. We're going to have a time of invitation. It's a time for you to come forward and pray or to have someone pray with you or to tell one of the ministers, I'm ready. I'm ready to be different. I'm ready to join. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. Thank you that not only did you send Jesus as a supreme sacrifice, but you sent the Holy Spirit, that you sent power to the people, that we can have the power of God in our lives, 
The power of God to break the chains of complacency. The power of God to set us free from our sins. Father, right now, we pray that you work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.